He'd just have to ask Cho for a private word. That was all. He hurried off through the packed corridors looking for her, and, rather sooner than he had expected, he found her emerging from a Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson. Uh, Cho, could I have a word with you? Giggling should be made illegal, Harry thought furiously, as all the girls around Cho started doing it. She didn't, though. She said, Okay, and followed him out of earshot of her classmates. Harry turned to look at her, and his stomach gave a weird lurch as though he had missed a step going downstairs. Ah, uh, he said. He couldn't ask her. He couldn't, but he had to. Cho stood there looking puzzled, watching him. The words came out before Harry had quite got his tongue around them. Wanna go ball with me? Sorry, said Cho. Do you, do you want to go to the ball with me? If Lord of the Rings created the fantasy genre, Harry Potter breathed new life into it. You can make a serious argument to say it's the second most influential fantasy series of all time. And yet, for all that Harry Potter is an exceptional piece of young adult fantasy literature, one thing it is not is a bastion of diversity. Criticisms were leveled at Rowling for including one Asian character with a name so blandly uninspired it would be like Harry being called John Smith if he were the only white character. Creating greater diversity in literature has been an ongoing battle for decades, and speculative fiction has not escaped critical examination. Octavia Butler, Alice Sheldon, and Ursula K. Le Guin were just a few among the many trailblazers who fought to bring more equity to a genre dominated by white male authors writing about white male characters in a world inspired by white Western history. The battle isn't done, but it has shifted. The fantasy genre is now seeing a heyday for worlds and stories inspired by a wider variety of influences. Has the European fantasy knight in shining armor been shunted aside to make room for diverse protagonists? Or is he just biding his time to make his return? genre where the only limitations are imagination and language, fantasy is still finding new ways to grow. This is Modern Magic, the show where I speak to authors about how the genre is changing and whether those changes are for better or worse. So sit back, sip on red wine like your Cersei Lannister in the Red Keep, and enjoy. It's like me and Tolkien, right? Why, do you, why are you reading an old white sexist dude? It's like, because I loved them. This is as good a spot as any to point out that I'm a white guy with a European ancestry.
The views I'm discussing in this episode are carefully put together through discussions with a handful of exceptional BIPOC fantasy writers like Michelle Segarra here. What Segarra is describing is the unusual position that a lot of racialized fantasy authors find themselves in. These are authors who grew up with Tolkien in the archetype of the heroic white male hero. For many, it was all that was out there when they began to read fantasy fiction. When Segura began to write fantasy, it was an easy choice to replicate certain elements of Tolkien and other authors she read as a kid. I wasn't looking for people who look like me. I wasn't looking for people who look like me in visual media. I wasn't looking for people who look like me in written media. So it took me a while to understand truly and fully that people actually do care and that it actually does matter because it didn't. What I was looking for was somebody who thought like me or who felt like me. While Segura still was able to connect with characters, other authors struggled to find common ground with the characters they read about. Growing up and reading a lot of fantasy fiction that was set in vaguely medieval European story worlds, I often felt like I couldn't see myself in those stories because they were clearly written from a cultural heritage that was different from mine as an Asian American. That's Fonda Lee, author of the Greenbone Saga. And um, when my dad introduced me to Chi uh, Chinese mythology and wuxia fiction and kung fu films, like things that he had grown up with, um, I initially kind of rejected them because I didn't really connect with those either. But as I grew up, I came to appreciate those more and what inf they influenced me as much um, as a writer. It's a pretty complex situation, struggling to connect with characters who don't look like her, but also, initially, struggling to connect with the more Asian-influenced media while she grows up in the West. As a kid, you just absorb stuff and you don't question it so much. Um, and I have talked before about how I just sort of accepted that that was what fantasy fiction was. That was the definition of fantasy fiction, was that it would have knights and kings and wizards and dragons and all of that. Um, and I also accepted uh, sort of the default of the, really the white male hero uh, as being the protagonist of those fantasy stories. Like Segura, Lee didn't necessarily see anything wrong in those stories she consumed as a kid. Like Segura, Lee went on to write stories inspired by her childhood. She just so happened to have been exposed to Asian-inspired kung fu movies in equal parts with the traditional fantasy novels. And still, there are some BIPOC authors who were acutely aware that the stories they read weren't necessarily representative of their own experience and perspective, even from a younger age. Tania D. Johnson set out to write fiction that expressly rejected the status quo, emphasizing Black and queer perspectives. I was usually growing up the only one of me or very few of me. So critical analysis comes very natural to me um, and, and seeing what's a fallacy and what's not a fallacy. So I could see those things and enjoy them and, and read them, but I never wanted to replicate them in that way because for me it was missing something and because it was such a ubiquitous perspective, I didn't feel like the world needed more of that. And I certainly didn't want to tell that story because becoming a writer for me, I remember pretty clearly being in class one day and thinking about how to, to write this particular essay. Like I knew how to get the grade, easy. But I made um, a conscious decision 
that I wanted to write it as myself. And that for me, I think, is when I truly became a writer. Already we start to see the complexity of the issue. Current generation of fantasy authors, most of them read and loved the classic European fantasy, or at least appreciated it for what it was. Some didn't necessarily see an issue there and set out to write stories similar to the ones they loved. Others saw a glaring absence of voices like their own and sought to remedy it. Things complicate even further when you consider the fact that, even if, for example, an Asian-American writer told stories set in a European-inspired fantasy world instead of an Asian-inspired world, just by virtue of being an Asian writer in a space traditionally dominated by white men, isn't that person already heavily contributing to the diversification of the genre? It's a lot to think about, and it brings us towards the idea of who can or should write what. I think you should be able to, to I think personally, you should be able to write whatever you want to write. So um, I know that that can be a, a fraught topic at times. I feel as if you, if you do it with respect and you try to do it well, uh, one should write whatever they can write well. So I don't necessarily... My characters, a lot of my protagonists, absolutely, are Black women. Do I feel that they need to be Black women all the time? Absolutely not. And I tend to write stuff that's multivocal because I do want to have different kinds of, of point of view characters. So um, I think it's really important to have that freedom because, you know, a person didn't wake up this morning, every morning, wanting to represent. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to represent yourself and the ideas that are in your head and, you know, and, and we all have characteristics. We all, you know, if you wrote it down on a piece of paper, we would fulfill certain demographics, but as a creative, as an artist, I feel that it's best to, uh, to go all the places you want to go as long as you do it well. Johnson's approach here is laudable, but there are others who feel differently. Segura mentioned that, in the past, she's felt pressure to write more Asian-inspired fantasy. I tended to avoid certain things because I don't like cultural pressure to do things I think are dumb. I don't like pressure in general. If I have thought through all of the ethical imperatives that govern my own actions, why do I have to give those up because the community has decided I should be doing something I don't even think is relevant? Whatever the case may be, What's clear is that there is a huge appetite for fantasy inspired by non-European history. If there's one thing that will always govern trends in literature, it's a pursuit of the money. In particular, Asian and African fantasy is seeing rapid growth with the rise of astronomically successful authors like N.K. Jemisin, Ken Liu, and Tomi Adeyemi, to name a few. Even now, we're seeing fantasy literature branch into Latin-inspired worlds, or drawing influence from the history of different indigenous peoples. I hope to see more with First Peoples and Native American perspectives. Uh, that's incredibly rich as well and hasn't been uh, given the spotlight in the way that I hope it will soon. But it's also, it seems to me, this particularly interesting way of uncolonizing, decolonizing, you know, because so much of those cultures have been lost because of colonization. But now taking it back, essentially in a lot of ways to where the colonization began uh, and seeing what was of value because there's been so much rhetoric and so much propaganda about how all of these peoples were less than, you know, and, and, and deserving to be conquered and seeing the ways in which they never were conquered because the spirit was never conquered. 
So um, I feel like it's a great time to be reading and writing speculative fiction. The world is a big damn place with so much history crammed into it. There's so much potential for the fantasy genre when you consider magic and creatures and stories that take influence from previously untapped cultures. And who better to tell those stories than the people who belong to that particular cultural heritage? There will always be a place in fantasy for knights and dragons. The wild success of Game of Thrones has definitely taught us that much. But there's also room for wider perspectives that can broaden the genre and make it into something that's unequivocally better. Special thanks to Michelle Seguera, Fonda Lee, and Tania D. Johnson for being featured in this episode, and thanks to Adrian Von Ziegler for the use of his music. Join me next time to look at whether sex and violence in fantasy has gone too far.